Welcome to Unhacking Democracy, a podcast that jumps down the rabbit hole to explore the world of information manipulation in the social media age. It's an adventure that will take us from the fake news on your Facebook page and the trolls on your Twitter account, to shady tech companies, Machiavellian billionaires with dark money and darker motives, the psychology of online movements and how they can be subverted, and perhaps most importantly, we will explore ways to cleanse our polluted information streams. My guest today is Ben Nemo. Ben is the Information Defence Fellow with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. He is an analyst of defence and international security, specialising in patterns and trends on disinformation and hybrid warfare. From 1999 to 2011, he worked as a writer and journalist throughout Europe, including five years in Brussels, covering EU and NATO issues for Deutsche Press Agentur DPA. In 2011, he joined the NATO press office. His duties involved expertise in fields including NATO-Russia and NATO-Ukraine relations, partnerships, deterrence, and conventional and missile defence. He is a senior fellow of the Institute for Statecraft in London, an associate scholar of the Centre for European Policy Analysis, and is fluent in French, German, Russian, and Swedish. In this conversation, we talk about how Russia uses information and disinformation to achieve its goals. Russia is one of the few countries who really understands the power of the internet and is one of the countries most active in its use of social media manipulation. Understanding how Russia conducts social media manipulation in practice is an important piece of the puzzle. We also talk about what individual people can do to start combating the problem. Ben, thank you for coming on. Great pleasure. Today, I really want to talk to you about Russia in particular to try and underpin some of the the context for this debate, because it feels like a lot of our news reporting is focused on the details of what is going on in relation to particular bot accounts or Facebook advertising. But I'd like to try and set that in the context of what Russia is trying to achieve overall with these techniques. Maybe the first question is, if you were to highlight Russia's geopolitical interests in relation to Europe and the EU, how would you characterize those interests? Well, Russia's really taking a, a twin track approach, if you like, and and the most important track is always the survival of the Russian government. So the priority for Vladimir Putin and and his government is to make sure that they stay in power. That government was very largely shaped by the experience of the 80s and 90s, by the collapse of the Soviet Union, by the breakaway of all the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and by the the collapse of communism and, and the economic shocks which followed. And it looks like one of the lessons that they have taken from the end of the Soviet era is the way in which normal Soviet citizens in those days looked towards the West and thought that things are better on the other side. They've got democracy, they've got Coca-Cola. The Soviet Union didn't have either. And particularly in a situation now where the Russian government, particularly in 2011 and 12, suddenly appeared to be unpopular. People people had got fed up of seeing Putin and Medvedev in charge for the last 12 years. There were protests against election fraud. There were big protests against corruption. There was a sense that the, the Russian government was really suddenly felt insecure. And so a lot of what we've been seeing since then is the Russian propaganda machine targeting the West and and attacking Western democracy and attacking the idea of Western democracy. But one of the reasons for doing that is so that they can point to it and say, look, the West is in chaos. You've got people like Donald Trump in charge. You've got Catalonia and, and Spain. You've got the Spanish riot police cracking down. That's not really democracy. You're better off in Russia. You're better off with the system you've got. And so part of what we perceive as attacks on our democracy are actually really aimed at Russian audiences. <clears throat> and the attempt is to, is to tell Russian audiences, even if they've got Coca-Cola, well, you don't want to have their kind of democracy, you're better off where you are. Are there specific objectives around, for example, around NATO and the role of NATO in Eastern Europe as well? Yeah, there are, there are specific narratives which are being pushed um, as regards NATO, which is about making it harder for NATO to deploy its forces in Eastern Europe. So we, we've repeatedly seen accusations that uh, NATO forces in, in the Baltic states or Poland are, are drunken or violent or they're committing rapes. Um, and th- these are all narratives which get recycled fairly regularly. There's also a narrative that 
NATO is actually dragging the Baltic states and Poland into a conflict with Russia that that maybe the Baltics and Poland don't actually want themselves. Um, there's an argument that if effectively, if you guys weren't in NATO, your relationship with Russia would be so much better. So that there are specific targets there as well, and and one of the one of the recurrent themes we see is is that NATO is the aggressor and that Russia hasn't done anything wrong. And it feels like the the states around Eastern Europe, um, around the borders of Russia, have been targets of these kinds of campaigns for a lot longer in a way than than Western democracies, where we feel like it's something slightly newer. Is that true? Is that the case? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and one of the ironies about this whole situation is the way in which nowadays you're getting people like the Baltic states, they're really being listened to because they've, they've been telling the West for at least the last 15 years that this kind of thing was going on. And and certainly if you go, if you went back in time 15 years, they would have been told, well, no, you've got to take Russia's view into account and we don't want to ruin our relationship with Russia. Um, and effectively, they'd be they'd be patted on the head and told to run away and play. That's not happening anymore. Um, and I remember, in, for example, I was a journalist in the Baltics in 2007, and there were riots in Tallinn of the Russian speakers there because the Estonian government had relocated a war memorial. And a lot of that was driven by, by Kremlin propaganda, the, the messaging that the Estonians were violating the bones of the dead and that they were chopping the war memorial into pieces and that they weren't planning to put it back. These were all rumours that were pushed and cultivated by the Russian propaganda machine. And and they had a real effect on the ground. And so this is going back 10 years. Already the Russian disinformation machine was strong enough to get people to riot in Estonia. Of course, there there was anger there already. So in a sense, it was weaponising the anger rather than creating it in the first place. And that's the way the, the Russian machine tends to work. It'll take existing sentiment and then make it make it more extreme rather than trying to create sentiment. But yeah, I mean, the Baltics have been seeing this throughout their lives. And it feels like the, the recent expansion of their efforts into Western democracies, into the States and into the, potentially into the UK is a relatively new phenomenon. Do you have a sense of what precipitated that change of approach or... Has it been saying that actually has been going on longer, we just haven't noticed it? I think the scale has increased. The immediate trigger will have been the uh, the crisis over Ukraine in 2014. So the perception in Russia was that the revolution in Ukraine was in some way a CIA plot uh, and that therefore Russia had to strike back. That, that seems to have been the case. That, seem, that seems to be the belief. And off the basis of that, Russia launched a covert military operation in Crimea, annexed Crimea very quickly and very effectively, tried to do something similar in eastern Ukraine and went badly wrong, got into a shooting war with the Ukrainians, ended up sending in the Russian army because the the Ukrainian rebels couldn't handle it on their own. Um, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was shot down, 298 people were killed, and the West imposed sanctions. And despite all the, the, the shocks to the system since then, the sanctions are still in place. Russia is under economic pressure. It's been kicked out of the G8, so it's under diplomatic pressure. It's come under serious criticism for what it did. And that is portrayed by some people in the Russian government as a deliberate attack and a plot by the West. So you're getting this situation in which the, the narrative from part of the Russian elite is, well, we're under attack, so we're going to strike back. And on top of that, you have um, there are more opportunities than there were before. So particularly in 2014, you had the Scottish independence referendum. A, a referendum is always a really big, juicy target for the Russian disinformation machine because it's such a divisive issue. It's a yes or no. Um, even more so in the case of the Brexit campaign, the Brexit debate, that was a hugely divisive issue, which is perfect perfect target for for the russian disinfo and then of course we had the the us presidential election last year and where where you have the for russia the ultimate combination it's not only a us presidential it's not only extremely partisan anyway but one of the candidates is hillary clinton who was secretary of state in 2011 and she was very outspoken in criticizing the russian elections that were held at that point she, she came out and said how concerned she was that the Russian parliamentary elections in December 2011 had been rigged. And she was critical of the way that um, Putin's own re-election was, was rigged in 2012. 
So she was herself a, a hate figure for the Russian elite, and she was she was portrayed in Russia as trying to interfere in Russia's election. So in a sense, the attempt to then torpedo her candidacy would have been seen as a tit for tat. And a lot of the Russian disinformation we saw last year wasn't primarily aimed at getting Trump elected. It was primarily aimed at stopping Hillary. And so, so early in 2016, the Russian disinformation machine was boosting Bernie Sanders and it was attacking Hillary Clinton. Later on, it switched to supporting Trump all the way through 2015 and 2016. Hillary Clinton was the main target of the of the negative propaganda. And part of that goes back to her role in 2011 as Secretary of State. Before the Ukraine situation. So in 2011 and 2012, you had parliamentary and presidential elections in Russia. There was lots of evidence online that they'd been rigged. There were all kinds of YouTube videos going around. People were sharing on social media footage of the different ways in which the election was being rigged. And on top of that... Um, you'd had a period for four years where Dmitry Medvedev was president, Putin was prime minister, and for four years they'd been say, they'd been saying quite coyly, "Well, we haven't agreed what we're going to do yet. Maybe Medvedev will have another term. Maybe Putin will have another term." And then a few months before the election, Putin actually said, "Well, yes, I'm I'm going to run for president. Medvedev is going to run for prime minister. We agreed this four years ago." And so effectively, Putin confirmed to the Russian people that he'd been lying to them for the last four years about what the intentions were. And that was a very unpopular move. Russians are not stupid. They don't like being taken for a ride. And for the first time in his life, Putin was actually unpopular. There was a famous occasion where he he stepped into the ring in a mixed martial arts fight to congratulate the winner, and he was booed. And there were actually protests in Moscow in 2012, people saying, effectively, Putin's been in power since 1999. We don't want him in power till 2024. That's a quarter of a century under one guy. And so in the midst of... This was a real shock for the Kremlin. It, the, the, the Putin in particular and the Russian government in general had never been used to that level of vocal unpopularity. And then on top of that, you have Hillary Clinton as the Secretary of State coming in and saying, yeah, we're concerned about this. We see that there is election rigging going on and, and this is not a good thing. That seems to have been interpreted as foreign interference in Russia's domestic affairs and, and in Putin's attempts to get re-elected. And it's it's after 20, that 2011-2012 period that Russia really brought in the uh, very fierce legislation targeting NGOs and calling them foreign agents and cracking down still more on the media. They closed down the, the state newswire, Ria Novosti, which was actually a, a relatively independent reporting body in those days. They shut that down and they replaced it with Sputnik, which is which is blatant state propaganda. So it's from 2011-2012 that you really had a lot of actions against democracy by the Russian government. And it's in and they were criticized for that in the West. And that's that all that came before the Crimean annexation, but it fed this atmosphere of suspicion and anti-western sentiment within the Russian government. And it's worth maybe exploring a bit further the fact that these information techniques, whilst we were experiencing them for a relatively early time in the in the West, the East have had them for a long time. But is it the case that Russians themselves have been targets of their own government's information campaigns as well? Absolutely. Um, and if you look at Putin's early career, one of his first moves in the early 2000s was to, to re-establish state control over the main TV outlets. Um, and, and all through his career, you can tell that he has viewed the media and reporting as one of the ways of controlling the people. Um, so first there was the takeover of, of the TV stations in 2005 after the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, in which it had been seen that the independent media had reported how peaceful the demonstrations were in Ukraine. Um, that was when Putin took the decision to launch Russia Today TV, which, which, which is now known as RT. Um, and that was very much a reaction to the situation in Ukraine where all the Western media had been effectively saying these peaceful demonstrators are peaceful demonstrators. And, and in a sense, RT's job has always been to turn around and say, well, no, they're not peaceful, they're Nazis. Um, we saw the same thing in 2008 and, and RT's own chief editor is on the record as saying that in 2008, during the Georgian war, the war between Russia and Georgia, RT was fighting the information war against the whole of the rest of the Western world. So you, you have an explicit acknowledgement from the chief editor of RT that RT is a weapon of the state, and, and it was created to do that job. Then later on, with, with, the, with the emergence of social media and online reporting, you then have 
Ria Novosti, the state broad, the, the state news agency, being shut down and replaced with Sputnik. Sputnik is propaganda, which is optimized for sharing on social media. Um, but all these things have been paralleled by developments in Russia. So you've had the Russian TV stations taken over. Ria Novosti, which was independent, is no longer independent. And even the Troll Factory, which is a large building in St. Petersburg where people are employed on 12-hour shifts to have, to run fake social media accounts. The Troll Factory was initially used and initially reported as targeting Russians. It was targeting the Russian opposition. It was targeting um, anti-corruption campaigners in Russia. So the first use of the Troll Factory was actually to crack down or to target Russians rather than the West. And it looks like it then evolved to become this more international service. And does it look like the um, approach in, in Russia was successful and has it looks like Putin has become more successful? Is that correct? Well, it'll be very interesting to watch next year in March because that's when he's up for... We, we are assuming that he's going to run for re-election. The election has been called for the 18th of March, which is the anniversary of the day in which Putin announced the annexation of Crimea. So he's certainly set it up as you know his big patriotic date. And it'll be interesting to see what the turnout is like and whether there are any protests. And there, um, the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who is a, an anti-corruption campaigner, has done a lot of work exposing corruption by the Russian government. Um, there's one video he's done in particular which ex which exposes the amount of money that Dmitry Medvedev has. Um, and that's been viewed more than 25 million times, including in Russia. So Putin has certainly managed to take control of TV, of radio, of the newspapers. The troll factory is certainly trying to impose its control on the internet. Um, and there's more and more talk in Russia of setting up a, a Russian-only internet, which would in, in some way again be more subject to state control. So it looks like in the broad masses, Putin has managed to reassert his popularity and his dominance. But we'll only see if it's really worked in March next year. And I suspect what we're going to see is, is lower turnout. The, the impression is that there's not actually much enthusiasm for Putin. There's more a weariness with the system and a desire for change and the acknowledgement that you're not going to get change. So in fact, <laughs> ironically, it really does seem that in a sense, the Russian government is actually reliving those grand old days of the 1980s all over again. Absolutely. And is there a sense of awareness in the Russian population about the fact that this is happening, that they're getting disinformation pushed towards them through every channel that's available? There always has been. Um, and the, the, the depth of cynicism that you'll hear from Russians about what you can believe from the government and what you can believe from the media, I mean, that, that goes back to Soviet times, that there was always a, a sense in Russia that, that the way to find out what was really happening was to, to disbelieve what the government was telling you or to disbelieve what you read in, in Pravda. And so there's, there's a great deal of questioning, and it, but it seems to be it's a questioning of everything. It, it's not that there is a specifically, oh, well, you don't believe what the government says. It's, it's a much more, it's almost nihilism. It's, we don't believe anything that anybody says because you can't believe anyway, anybody. It's a, it's a very fragmented kind of system. And there, there's, there's scepticism. Sure, there's scepticism about what the Russian government says. There's even more scepticism about what Western governments say. It's almost a stage where you don't believe anything that anybody says. And again, that's likely to have a depressing effect on, effect on people's desire to turn out and vote. And that seems to mirror exactly what we've seen in some of the approaches taken in Western democracies, where the attacks on the mainstream media and on other sources of information have downgraded people's ability to trust these sources. Do you think that has been a, a conscious approach? I think the, the, the approach has been conscious and something you regularly see with, with all kinds of disinformation and, and fraudulent outlets is that they will, they will attack the genuine article. They, they will say, you shouldn't believe them, you should believe me instead. And something you always see from the fringe media is they will attack the mainstream media. They will say, oh, you can't believe any of the mainstream media because they're all saying the same thing, which, which shows you know, an absolute lack of understanding of the way the mainstream media work. But I think the, the, the targeting of mainstream media is entirely deliberate and it's meant to discredit them. I think the effect mm -hmm. of creating confusion, they're creating disbelief rather than belief. And I think that's probably a slightly unintended consequence. I, th I think the, in the intent would have been to tell people, 
don't believe what you read in the mainstream media, believe us instead. In fact, the effect they're tending to create is, well, don't believe us, don't believe the mainstream media and don't believe anybody else either. So it's, it's probably more of an unintended consequence, but the consequence is certainly there. Okay, I, I want to dive into some of these techniques in a bit of detail if possible, um, because we're seeing sort of some signs of, of a lot of the approaches. We're seeing the fake news pop up on our Facebook accounts. We're hearing about trolls on our Twitter feeds. But I want to try and break down exactly how these operations play out um, as they're planned. Do you have an example that you can talk about that is a good description of how these kind of disinformation campaigns work in practice? Yeah, and there's a, there's a good example from late September this year, which it, it shows you the way the different parts of the, of the Russian disinformation machine work together. Um, so in, in September this year, the actor Morgan Freeman fronted a video which was accusing Russia of interfering in the US election. Um, this did not go down well in Russia. And what claimed to be an anonymous group of activists calling themselves Agitpog, which means Agitation Regiment, launched a, said on their website that they were going to launch a hashtag Stop Morgan Lie. Now, subsequently, it has been confirmed that Agitpog is actually run from the troll factory in St. Petersburg. So this is your classic fake activist group. They're not actually activists, they're, they are employees of the Russian troll factory. But they launched a hashtag called Stop Morgan Lie. The initial launching was done by a batch of effectively anonymous troll accounts on Twitter. So it was pushed out on Twitter by accounts which had stolen their photos from somewhere else, the names didn't mean anything. They're your classic agitation accounts. They were then amplified by a whole load of bots, so by automated Twitter accounts. Again, either they don't have a personal picture or they're, they're stealing somebody else's picture. And all they do is amplify. They, they retweet everything that comes out with that hashtag on it. The hashtag was then picked up by official Russian uh, Twitter feeds, including the Russian consulate general in Geneva and the Russian embassy in South Africa. They used the same hashtags. They created their own memes. Um, legendarily, the, 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 the Russian embassy in South Africa posted a, a, a meme of Morgan Freeman with the message, Morgan Freeman smokes dope, so, so why would you believe him? Um, you know, which coming from an embassy is pretty, pretty far going. Uh, in total, all, all this activity generated about 10,000 tweets, which is a small movement on Twitter. Um, and of those, about 9,000 were in Russian mm -hmm. and about 1,000 were in English. I analysed the, the tweets in English and of those 1,700 were just retweets. So you're talking, there were only actually 300 original English language posts about Stop Morgan Lie across the whole of Twitter, which, which is tiny. You know, it's, it's a pimple on the skin of the Twitter titan. It's nothing. Um, but it was enough for Russia Today, RT, to run a long web story on the English language posts um, where the, the, the essential message was that Morgan Freeman has done this video and, in inverted commas, people are disappointed. Um, in, in fact, it should have been not very many people are disappointed. But but that's where you see, you know, it starts with the troll factory. They create the hashtag. It then gets pushed out by trolls and bots. It gets picked up and amplified by Russian embassies and consulates. And then RT run a story on it. And then RT do a tweet using the same hashtag again. So you've got all the different bits of the machine working together to try and push out this hashtag. In fact, in this case, they didn't do very well. It only generated 10,000 tweets, and most of those were in Russian. Um, and then I did a few tweets commenting on this and saying, yeah, it's kind of weird that RT is doing this story. And then a second wave of trolls started attacking me and started criticizing my work for doing that. So that, that's really where you see all these different pieces of the machine coming together. And what they're trying to do is create a false impression of reality and then attack anybody who actually lifts the veil. The other side of the coin, in, in a way, is that trying to make evidence claims about what is actually going on and how much of an impact it's having is equally hard. Do you have any sense of how we can go about measuring, or have you heard about tools which help measure the effect of these campaigns, both in small cases like the one that you mentioned and potentially in broader campaigns? And we've heard about the, the Russia accounts, uh, the Russian uh, troll accounts um, supporting Brexit and the various Facebook posts. Um, and advertising, but it's really hard to know how much we can say on the back of that, how much we can say that they had an impact or had influence on the, the result. It's very, very hard to measure 
because you can't you can't reach in somebody's head and work out exactly which message it was that changed their minds and the things that the that the, the Russian troll factory and the, the Russian disinformation machine is really good at is its its infiltration it will find people who already believe something and then it will amplify them so for example during the Brexit campaign an awful lot of the coverage particularly on Sputnik was amplifying genuine leave campaigners and interviewing them and asking them soft questions you know tell us why the EU is so bad and tell us why Britain will be better when you leave and then not doing the same thing with the Remain side but it's not that Russia is creating the leave sentiment the leave sentiment was there anyway what it's doing is amplifying it and distorting the overall picture by focusing on one side and not the other and so for that reason it's very difficult to 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 tease out exactly what came what was the result of the russian interference and what was the result of all the other things that were going on what you can do is identify individual cases where a message which started on the russian propaganda channels ended up going viral or going mainstream um, and there's a good case of that from september the 12th 2016 when Sputnik ran a 5,000-word article by a U.S. academic claiming that Google was rigging its uh, its autocomplete search results to favor Hillary, Hillary Clinton and, and to suppress uh, negative autocomplete suggestions about her. Um, you know, as it happened, this was a theory which had been debunked three months before, and Sputnik and, and RT had interviewed the same guy six times in six months. So this, it was a clear case in which the Russian propaganda outlets were trying to push this message out there, that Google was rigging its results in favour of Clinton. What's interesting is about the, the article that they ran on, on September the 12th, Sputnik was the only outlet which ran it, but it was then picked up by conservative outlets in the US, including Fox News and Breitbart. Um, and then a few days later, Donald Trump said in a press conference that Google was suppressing the bad news about Clinton. And the likelihood is that Trump got his claim from either Breitbart or Fox, because they're the two outlets he follows a lot. But we know that both Breitbart and Fox got the claim from Sputnik in the first place. So that's one way you can see that what started off as a message on a Russian propaganda platform went all the way through to, the, you know, to, to, to a candidate for president of the United States in the space of a few days. And that, that shows you how far this stuff can go. It's almost like the laundering of information from quite dirty sources up to, the, up to where they're put on a pedestal as, as truth. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's disinformation laundering. It's, it's, it's spreading a story and seeing how far it will go. Or it's like spreading a virus. The, the Russian information machine sneezes and they see how far the virus flies and hopefully they're going to infect other people. I want to just nip back to, to Brexit in a way, just because it feels like that's an area where the debate has been a bit slower than has been in, in the US, where there's been less discussion about the potential risk of Russian influence. And we're starting to see it starting to trickle out now. But there's a lot of reluctance, or it feels like there's a lot of reluctance to talk about it among the main political parties, partly for political expediency, I'm sure. But do you think it's ever going to be the case that we could say that the Russian influencing techniques used during the Brexit campaign had a significant impact? Or can we only say that uh, maybe maybe the language we want to use is that it impacts the, the democratic quality of the overall referendum? We don't have enough information yet. We, we can definitely say that the Russian trolls which were targeting America were also tweeting quite a lot about Brexit. But the we, at the moment, we have questions rather than answers. The first question is, we know that there was a whole team of Russian troll accounts which were targeting the US election. And Twitter have, has found loads of those accounts and has suspended them. We don't know if there was an equivalent team targeting the Brexit debate. We don't have those data from Twitter yet. And that's the first thing we need to get. And the same from Facebook. We know that in the US, there were a whole load of political adverts paid for in rubles targeting American voters. Yeah, the fact that they were paid in rubles was kind of a hint that that was coming from Russia. But it took Facebook a while to notice that. But the, the question is then, was there the same kind of thing in the UK? Were there targeted ads on Facebook in the UK which were paid for in rubles or paid for by the troll factory in St. Petersburg? At the moment, we don't know. And the thing is, while those questions are unanswered, we won't have any sense of the scale of the problem. And it was very interesting that the, you know, the response from Twitter and Facebook 
initially sort of straight after the election was to say oh rubbish it was nothing to do with us and and, and mark zuckerberg the, the the head of facebook is on the record as saying it's totally crazy to suggest that fake news on facebook may have played a role in the election uh, and then gradually during the year facebook acknowledged that actually more and more russian propaganda had slipped through the net and that more and more people had seen it and to start off with they said you know they, they'd found a i think a a couple of thousand paid adverts and then they worked out that those had been seen by hundreds of thousands of people and then they worked out that surrounding those there had been various troll accounts and, and by the end of it they were talking about I think 126 million people had seen content from the troll factory and that's a third of the US population that's a huge impact but it takes a while to get the understanding of, of the scale of it and you can only do that when you actually have the data from the social platforms themselves so right now, what we really need to see from Twitter and Facebook is a public accounting of whether they have found similar troll groups, whether they have seen similar propaganda outlets on their platforms, how big they were, how far they went, what kind of reach they had. And it seems like the social media platforms have been somewhat reluctant to hand over that data, and it required a lot of efforts in the US to, to actually get that data. Do you have a sense of why that is? I, I think they're between a rock and a hard place. Cause if, you think, if you think back six years, 2011 and the Arab Spring, Twitter and Facebook were hailed as you know, the, the new megaphones for democracy. Anti-government protesters, you know, pro-democracy protesters, could organise themselves online through Facebook and Twitter, and they could you know, have these massive protests and overthrow dictatorial governments. That, you know, that's what happened in Egypt, for example. And, and so there was this sense that Twitter and Facebook were the good guys and um, the bad guys were the ones who were trying to get data from Twitter and Facebook. Because, for example, if the Egyptian security services had been able to get from Twitter and Facebook the data on where all these people were who were organizing the demonstrations, the demonstrations wouldn't have happened. And, and somewhere deep in, in the psyche of, of Twitter and Facebook is, I think, this idea that free speech is always good and you have to empower free speech as much as possible. What we're now seeing is that free speech, it, free speech is, is vital, but there are people who will deliberately target it and abuse it in order to attack other people, <clears throat> which is what the Troll Factory is doing. But it's very difficult for Facebook and Twitter to turn around and say, OK, now we're going to cooperate with the FBI. Their, their entire their entire philosophy is that you know, they are there to protect the privacy of their users. And that, that applies to all users. But that means that it also applies to the troll factory in St. Petersburg. So for, for both Twitter and Facebook, I think it's a, it's a really difficult moral argument that they've been having to make. When do you hand over user data? Because if you do that too often, then, then users are going to uh, are going to stop using your platform. If people start thinking that everything they post on Twitter and Facebook can end up in the FBI or GCHQ, that's probably going to make people think think twice about whether they're on the platform at all. So it's a it, it's not the kind of thing where the platforms are going to jump up and down and say, "Quick, here's all our data, go and have fun." that's going to be much more a question of having to convince them why it's in the public interest for them to do that. And it takes time. And it feels like, though, that their interest is in maintaining trust with their users. But almost by not providing this insight, they're losing that trust as well. So, yeah, I see what you mean. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. They, they are. And, and, and in the same way, if you think about the problem of bots on Twitter, you know, automated accounts which don't have a real human being behind them, there are legitimate uses for bots news organizations use them there are the bots which do poetry there are bots which do photography but there are also people who use them for political spam and for political harassment and we got attacked by a big bot net a couple of months ago where tens of thousands of bots were, were targeting our twitter feeds um, me and my team try basically trying to, to stop us using our accounts but for twitter it's really hard because what they would have to do would be to to go through all the accounts of all the users on twitter and try and work out who is a political bot that's a huge job and it's a huge challenge and God help them if they get it wrong. Mm. If they shut down somebody's account and that person turns around and says, well, hang on, I'm a real person. I'm just hyperactive. I just happen to tweet 300 times a day on political subjects. Then that's a major reputational blow for Twitter. Whereas so far the sense has been, you know, allowing a, allowing a single bot to go on botting on Twitter is, a, is, a, is less of a reputational blow. And the thing is that those scales are now shifting. 
it is more and more widely reported the just sheer number of bots on Twitter. And that's starting to cause reputational damage of its own. So again, they're, they're having to balance effectively what, what's the greater harm. Is the greater harm mistakenly suspending an account which is genuine, or is it allowing bots to flourish on your platform? There isn't an easy answer to it. One of the things I'm trying to do with this is to point towards answers and to point towards some solutions. And obviously censorship is, is a, a really challenging area where the social media platforms don't want to be in that position of being the arbiter of what is true and what isn't. And, and equally, it feels like government regulation over what isn't, isn't allowed and is going to be really challenging. Are there any examples where countries or particular companies have been making positive strides in this area, which we can we can look to for an example of how to address the problem? I think it's much more about it, about education than regulation. It, it's teaching people how do you keep yourself safe from online manipulation? Because the propaganda we see is about manipulating people. It's about getting people to do what you want. And, and there's a you know, there's a limited number of ways you can do that. And so the best approach is to think about how you can how you can teach people to recognize propaganda and disinformation and manipulation, how they can recognize bots and trolls themselves and and teach them to do it for themselves because the the fundamental problem with with Twitter and particularly with Facebook is it's so big there's no way that the organization itself can police it. If you think there are, there are what now two billion active users on Facebook, you'd need to be employing a medium-sized country to keep track of it. So the only thing you can, or the most effective thing you can do, is is try and teach normal everyday users how to identify a fake account, how to identify a bot, how to identify a propaganda story, and and you teach them the technical skills to do it. And it, it's not difficult. It's things like being able to reverse search an image. Um, and you know, I I found fake accounts which which just steal the photos of of Hollywood stars and football stars and supermodels, and it's relatively easy. Just you know, click on the image, search for it in Google. That shows you that that picture is stolen from somewhere else. Just quickly, how how do you how do you reverse search an image? Um, it depends what what browser you're using. The the simplest one is if you're using Google Chrome, you right click on the image, um, and it will give you the option of search Google for this image. You click on that and it will show you everywhere else the image comes up. If you're in another browser, it, you, you need to do one more step. So you, you right-click on the image. Um, it'll give you the option to copy the image address. You copy the address and then you paste that into a Google search bar. And it will give you the option to search for the image. You click on that and again, it does the same thing. It'll show you everywhere else that, that the image has been used. And, and some of the more popular photos, you know, they've been used on dozens of different Twitter accounts or Facebook pages. Okay, so that's one good thing that people can do. Are there any other sort of key tips? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of identifying bots, um, you can think of the three A's. So, so you think of activity, anonymity, and amplification. And if, you, if you're not certain about a, a Twitter account, you go to its profile page, you look at when it was created, and look, you look at how many tweets it's posted. And then you can work out, on average, how many times it's posting per day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a simple division. And when you do that, um, you know, if, if you have an account which posts two or three times a day, that's a fairly normal human pattern of behavior. Um, there are bot accounts out there that I know that, that post 1,100 times a day. You know, there, there was a bot account I found, which I found it in January. It had been created in November. And between November and January, it had posted 86,000 times. You just look at that and think, there's no way that's not a human being. Um, you do get human beings who post an awful lot. So what you also need to do is you, you look at the you look at the the look for anonymity. Um, if you look at the profile page and you ask yourself, does this give any kind of personal information at all? Does it actually have a name? Is is the is the the username the same as the screen name? Um, does it give a does it give a photo? Does it have any kind of background information? What's it tweeting about? You know, is it tweeting about I had fish and chips for dinner or is it tweeting about politics? And if there's no kind of personal information there at all. Mm -hmm then you combine that with the with the level of activity and you start thinking hmm so it's posting 500 times a day and there's nothing to tell me that there's a human being behind this account that could be a bot um, and then the and then the third a is amplification because what political bots are used for is to to make things seem more popular than they really are 
So either they retweet loads of things or they'll like loads of things or they'll follow loads of accounts. But with all of those, what you do is you go to the, again, you go to the profile page uh, and you click on tweets and replies. So, so you see everything it's posting and you just scroll down the list and you see yeah, if, if there are lots of replies and there are lots of posts that is written itself, posts that look like a human being, you think, OK, so we've got somebody who's either paid to do this or they're or they're hyperactive, but at least they're a human being. But if all you see is, you know, 100, 200, 300 retweets one after the other with no kind of original content in between, then you're looking at a bot. You've got activity, you've got anonymity and you've got amplification and that's all they're doing. At that point, you can say, OK, this is probably a bot. Is there any way of, of being able to tell if the number of retweets that a tweet has got? Because as you said, one of the approaches that um, a lot of the, the times Russian influencing campaigns take is that they find an existing person who has the beliefs that they're looking to amplify and then they just amplify them. So it's not necessarily a bot account that's put out the initial tweet or the initial message. Is there any way of, of finding out how many of those retweets are bot generated? There are various bot spotting pieces of software out there. Um, there's one called Bot or Not, for example, which is an online web platform. You go to the web page and, and you put in you, you, you put an account into it and it'll tell you if it thinks it's a bot or not or, or the probability that it's a bot. Mm. Um, in terms of actually looking at a particular tweet, you can only really do that manually. But what, but what you do is you, you click on the tweet and then you click on the retweets and it will show you the accounts which retweeted it. And then you start you start checking those out to see if they are if they look like bots um, and, and there, there are certain shortcuts you use and there, there's a classic example where um, there was a, a a journalism outlet in the US called ProPublica was attacked um, online for some of its reporting um, and it was a it was a harassment effort so somebody posted a tweet insulting ProPublica and, and naming in the tweet tagging in the tweet all the ProPublica journalists so every time that that tweet got retweeted, it would show up in all their notifications. Um, and then that tweet was retweeted 23,000 times. So if you, if you imagine what their, what their notifications would have looked like, it was an avalanche. Um, and they asked me to investigate that account. And, and you know, so the first thing I did was looked at the account which had posted the tweet, and it only had 76 followers. Now, how in the world does somebody who only has 76 followers get 23,000 retweets? There's, there's just no way that's going to happen in real life. Not unless the first retweet is from somebody like J.K. Rowling and Donald Trump, somebody with millions of followers. And so that's one way you say, OK, I'm pretty certain that <laughs> without needing to look at the detail of the accounts, that is probably bot amplified. And, and anywhere you see you know, a huge discrepancy between the number of followers and the number of retweets, you're probably looking at bot activity. Because, you know, in real life, most of us, most of the time, will get a handful of retweets on our posts because we're just normal people, right? If we're suddenly getting 20,000 retweets, there's something very dodgy going on. Even if we've done the most brilliant and witty tweet in the world, we're not, people like us are not going to be getting 23,000 retweets. So, so that's normally a clue. If you get a really, really, really high number of, of retweets or likes, probably somebody has turned on a botnet. And what, when you say a botnet, could you explain exactly how a botnet um, interrelates to each other versus a series of individual bots? Sure. So, so an individual bot is basically a social media account that runs on autopilot. You, you, you tell it what to do and then it goes off and does it. So, so it'll be programmed to retweet everything containing a certain hashtag or retweet things from a certain set of accounts or to retweet anything containing certain keywords but whatever whatever the programming is you set it up and then you just let the account get on with it um, if you are a professional bot herder then you don't have one bot under your control you'll have tens of thousands and what you can do and what what they sometimes do is they they write a little extra piece of programming which says you know, here is my pre-program, so I will tell my bot to retweet everything containing hashtag X, and then I'll put in a little bit of extra code that says, yeah, and every all the other accounts which I control do the same thing. Sometimes they'll all do it at the same time. Sometimes they'll be built in a little time delay, so they do it 10 seconds apart, and the, the, the details vary. But effectively, a botnet is a large number of accounts which are all automated to do the same thing. 
or to follow the same instructions. And, and the big botnets are, they're in the hundreds of thousands. I'm quite fascinated by the technological side of this because my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the sophistication of the bots that are out there at the moment isn't huge. I and mean, there are some that are, are more sophisticated than others. My fear is that with the advent of increasingly intelligent artificial intelligence, the ability of these bots is only going to increase. And so the, the ability of, you know, once, once these bots start being able to pass the Turing test, the ability of everyday people to be able to look at them and analyze whether or not they are bots or how they're affecting them is going to be increasingly difficult. So I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that fact with the fact that, as you say, anything other than education is, is really challenging. So I know I'm in this quandary where I'm trying to work out how we can solve this problem. And it looks like it's, we're, we're in a kind of phase change now where we're, we're not really going to go back to the, the kind of cleaner information streams that we were used to. And potentially we're, we're going to be ping-ponged back and forth by competing campaigns from competing countries that are trying to influence us over one thing or another. Do you think that's a plausible scenario? And do you think that there are solutions to it? I think you're right. We, we're already seeing a quite a lot of um, variation in the way different bots operate. Um, and the more sophisticated ones, we actually think of as cyborgs. So it looks like they are mostly automated. Um, but, but we think the scenario is that there'll be a bot herder out there who controls a whole number of accounts, will automate them to do their thing, but will then log on to one of the accounts for five minutes and, and write a few tweets and reply to a few people and interact with a few people and, and generally make it look like there's a human being there. Then they'll log off from that account and they'll log into the next one and do the same thing. And they'll spend a few hours doing that, jumping from account to account. And that means that you'll see a much more mixed pattern of behavior from the accounts themselves. It won't be 300 retweets all in a row. It may be 50 retweets in a row and then four or five replies, which look like somebody actually wrote them. And then it'll be another 50 retweets and then another couple of replies. So we, we're already seeing that. And, and as mm. artificial intelligence gets more intelligent, I think we're likely to see more and more automation of that process. Something which, a theory which I've heard, um, is that one way, you, an, an easy way to get around that would be if Facebook and Twitter could actually mark posts which they know are automated. If they can say that this post was generated by an algorithm rather than a human being, then you don't need really to, to be labeling the account itself as automated or not, which is a very binary kind of distinction. distinction. It's very black and white. All you need to be able to do is to say, you know, this tweet was brought to you by automation. And then if you want to go and look at the, the account yourself and you see that all of its tweets are brought to you by automation, you've got a bot. Um, but even if it's only 50% automated, at least you know what you're dealing with is not purely human behavior. But on, on the bigger picture, you're right. We are going to see more and more attempts by more and more people in more and more ways to game the system. And at the moment, you know, the, the guys who are playing the game are far ahead of the platforms themselves. You know, there, there are tens of thousands of bots on Twitter, and Twitter will tell you how much they've done. You know, they've they've stopped a lot of the automated processes. In in the old days, um, from what I've seen, it used to be that you you could basically write a computer program that would create Twitter accounts for you, and you'd leave it to run, and you'd come back the next day, and and, and you know, bingo, you've got ten thousand accounts. Um, now that is much more difficult because Twitter has found ways of stopping that. But there is solid reporting that there are places, for example, in Russia, uh, where people are just employed to sit down and create fake accounts <laughs> on an industrial scale. They, yeah. They're given a whole list of usernames they can use. They're given a whole list of photos they can use. They're given a whole load of email addresses to use, and then they just go and create accounts. So, so you know, it's not even artificial intelligence. It's just paying for cheap humans to do it. And so we, and there's no way you can automate a way around that. It's real people doing it. So, so we're, we're going to have to get used to the fact that this is the environment we are now moving in. Um, and I, I think that the other thing which it would be worth discussing having is, is more verification of accounts. Because there's a lot of trouble with, for example, Twitter's account verification system at the moment because it's been verifying some very very unfortunate people um, it's been it's been verifying a couple of far-right accounts but mm. 
the idea the idea of the of the blue tick on on Twitter is that this account has been verified. Twitter have actually checked that the person who says they run the account really is the person who runs the account. And, and that way, if you know, if you see a blue tick mark tweeting on something, at least you know that there has been the due diligence done on that account. And you you can whatever else it might be, it's not a fake. And and I suspect what we might see is more more efforts at verification in order to restore trust in the system. Right now, trust in the system is broken. We are at the stage where all the time, certainly on political social platforms, people will be accusing each other of being Russian trolls or Russian bots on on no real evidence other than disagreement, um, which shows how little education there is out there, but it also shows how little trust there is out there. And And what the platforms really need to think of is how they restore the trust of their users that the person on the other end of the of the internet so to speak is actually a real person not a computer program i just want to close the circle with another part of this because the bots and the fake news are the front end of the system and what's behind that i guess has been the ability of actors to build huge data sets of personalized data for individual voters i guess we're talking about companies like Cambridge Analytica and Aggregate IQ. It feels like this debate has introduced a lot of people to the slightly murky world of international influencing and intelligence. And it's really hard to know exactly what is going on between these various actors. And you've got organisations like WikiLeaks who purport to be independent, but seem to have very close relationships with some of the Russian state media and, and so on. Do you have a sense of, of where whether it is possible for people to tell whether or not these organisations are independent, whether or not these companies have links to Russia? At the moment, it looks like the only way that's likely to come out is if there are actually leaks. Um, and, and one of the ironies with all the, all the open source research we're seeing, it's very good at establishing the probability. So you, it'll be very good at saying, this account is probably run from the troll factory, or this account is probably a bot, um, or this, is, this, this account is probably actually a Kremlin disinfo op. But the only way you can really prove it reliably is if you actually get whistleblowers coming out, you know, if you get genuine human beings coming out and saying, this is what it really is. Uh, and for example, there's a website called Newsfront, which is, it, it has all the fingerprints of Kremlin disinformation. It's very aggressive. It's very polemic. It's very anti-Western. Um, it says that America is to blame for everything and Russia is to blame for nothing. Um, it's always been suspected of being linked to the Kremlin information machine. Um, but what happened this summer was that somebody left the organization and went to Die Zeit newspaper in Germany and said, yep, I used to work there and it's funded by Russian intelligence and it sometimes gets orders from Russian intelligence. And that's, yeah, and they decided their work to, to verify that. And that's where you can actually say, okay, now we know, we, we, we can, if you like, we can move, move Newsfront from the suspected Russian info op box to the confirmed Russian info op box. Or there was another example in the Baltic states, there are, there's a set of, mm. of websites called Bolt News, which again are largely pro-Kremlin, anti-Western, anti-EU. Uh, and in that case, some investigative journalists in the Baltics did some digging and they managed to get hold of the company records of these companies. Uh, and they tracked the, the, the Baltic companies were run by a holding company in the Netherlands, which was run by another holding company somewhere else, whose ultimate beneficial owner was the same news agency as runs Sputnik. So uh, by doing that kind of di di diligent digging, they managed to trace a paper trail all the way back to the Kremlin's propaganda machine. And that, that's the kind of thing you can do. It's, it's not just open source. It's, you know, it's the old fashioned research. It's getting human beings involved. It's getting them to tell their stories. But failing that, you people have to start thinking about media in terms of their reliability rather than what they agree with. And something that the, the, you know, the mainstream media, the traditional media, are simply not given anything like enough credit for is the amount of background research they do before they'll run a story. And there was a classic example from the Washington Post earlier this week in which a woman came to the Washington Post and said she had a story that she had been sexually assaulted by 
Roy Moore, who is running to be the, the senator for Alabama, um, and that he had made her pregnant and she'd had to have an abortion. And she wanted to tell this story to the Washington Post, but she kept on asking them, will this bring down Roy Moore? Will this stop him from, from getting elected? And, and the Washington Post journalists did exactly the right thing that a journalist should. They checked. They checked her background. They checked the details of her story. And the more they checked, the more they thought, this doesn't add up. There were too many things in her story which did not make sense. And so rather than just going with a sensational story, come what may, they actually started questioning her. And eventually they saw her going into the building of an organization called Project Veritas, which is a far-right disinformation group in the US, which specializes in impersonating journalists and pretending to be researchers and trying to trap people into saying things they shouldn't. It targets the mainstream media and tries to entrap mainstream journalists. But because the Washington Post had done their due diligence, they didn't run a story on, oh my God, Roy Moore got a girl pregnant when she was 15. They ran a story on, here is a way in which somebody tried to set up the Washington Post because they'd done the due diligence. And, and that kind of that kind of digging and that kind of fact-checking, people just don't recognize that, that what's, that's what gets done. In the same way, I wrote a piece for CNN in early November last year explaining mm. some of the ways in which Russia was trying to intervene in the election. Um, and before CNN ran the story on their website, their fact checker got back to me and discussed every single hyperlink that I had put in the story. They they checked out every single one, and there were a couple of ones where they said, uh, "We think you got those two hyperlinks the wrong way round." You know, the classic just just copy and paste. You, you paste the wrong thing in the wrong place. But they they'd gone to that level of detail before they would publish anything. And again, that that's just not recognised in in the public as a whole. So something again something relatively low cost to do would be for the mainstream to say before we run a story here are all the hump the hoops that we jump through this is this is how you, know, you don't have to agree with us you might disagree with our policy but here is the due diligence that we do on our stories before we will run them to make sure that we are getting it right and again that's one of the big differences with between the mainstream media and the fringe media, just the degree of responsibility which they show. I probably shouldn't take up too much more of your time, but I guess before I close, it would be useful to know, are there areas of this that you feel are unexplored and need more focus? The main, the main gap is really seeing how the different platforms cross over to one or, one or another. Whenever we're doing research, all of us in this community tend to get stovepiped. Twitter is really easy to research because they'll give you access to all of the data. Facebook is much harder. But when we're looking at the disinformation campaigns, it goes across all the different platforms. But particularly in terms of Russian disinfo, it will pop up simultaneously on RT, on Sputnik, on the embassy Twitter feeds, on Twitter, on Facebook, on VK, which is the, which is the Russian social platform. And then it'll get picked up by a whole range of supportive media outlets which appear to be independent but just you know, ideologically agree with what Russia is saying and and to, to get more of an idea of how all these different bits fit together um, and you know, just to see the scale of the problem would be a huge thing but but honestly the other thing is there needs to be much more talk done on the emotional targeting so much of fake news works because it feeds people's anger or it feeds people's fear they're afraid of migrants or they're angry about economic deprivation they're angry about real things, and they're afraid of real things, and that's what the disinformation feeds on. And there hasn't been anything like as much research done on the emotional targeting. There's a lot of research done on, on how things spread on Twitter and how fakes get generated and, and the kind of platforms which are, which are pushing them. But actually that, that almost psychological analysis of why people want to share this stuff in the first place, even if they believe it it's wrong. That's the really big gap which we need to fill. One final question before I, I let you go. If you wanted to summarise the one headline message you wanted listeners to take away them, with them in, say, 10 to 15 words, what would you want people to come away with? Think before you click. Before you click on a story, think about what is the effect it is trying to make on you. Before you share it, think about where it comes from. If you share a story which turns out to be fake, you are effectively laundering somebody else's lie to all your friends. 
So there is so much disinformation out there from so many channels. All of us need to be a lot more cautious about what we share. So, so if, there's, if there's one thing where all of this starts, it's think before you click. Fantastic. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. This was one of my favourite conversations to date, and I feel much better informed about how Russia uses social media manipulation. The main point I came away mulling from this conversation was Ben's view that education, not regulation, is the solution. This is one I'm going to need to think about some more, because whilst I agree it is difficult for governments to get involved, I'm also worried that the sophistication of the techniques being used makes it really hard for people to understand what is going on. It also makes me somewhat depressed that we're entering a period where we may just have to put up with polluted information streams. I also want to follow up on the areas that Ben thinks need more focus, namely how Russian information operations cross over between different social media platforms and the psychology behind the targeting of people's emotions. If you know of anyone who I might be able to talk to about these areas, I'd be really grateful if you could let me know via Twitter. My handle is at Pete underscore CB. Until next time, though, thanks for listening.